Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Katya Sengel, whose latest book is Exiled, From the Killing Fields of Cambodia to California and Back. Katya Sengel is the author of Bluegrass Baseball, A Year in the Minor League Life, freelance journalist, has written on several subjects, reported from Baltics and Ukraine. And this book is about refugees from Cambodia, but there's an earlier article from 2015, I believe, about refugees and the problems in Guatemala as well. Before we get into the book, which features three or four families, depending upon how you want to look at it, from Cambodia and what happened in the killing fields, coming to America, and in some cases being forced back. We have the Guatemala story. So before we get into this, what got you working on the topic of refugees coming to the United States? Right out of college, I worked in the former Soviet Union, Latvia, and then Ukraine for almost half a decade. And I think there was the first time I ever touched on refugees. So it wasn't even in the U.S., but kind of that idea of displacement, fleeing the place you were from, especially it was post-Soviet world there. So there was a lot of migration going on. And then back in the U.S., I did a story about refugees. I was at a paper in Kentucky for a number of years. People might not remember, but they called them the Lost Boys of Sudan. They're a group of young men. This is before there was even South Sudan, but they were fleeing atrocities in their homeland and some got resettled in the U.S. And their story was they were orphans. What was left out of the story was that they had wives, and a lot of their wives were back in Africa after they had resettled here. So I went to Africa to track down their wives. And so I think what got me interested, especially in refugees in these issues, was the bigger story. We get a very narrow picture of the refugee experience, and I kind of wanted to widen that to put it in more context. What attracted you then to Guatemala? Guatemala, this was at a time, it was the summer before there'd been the large surge of unaccompanied minors from Central America. And there'd been a lot of stories about that surge, but there wasn't a lot about what happened then. It was very hard to get access to them once they were in the U.S. The government had hold of them. Journalists couldn't get access much. And so I heard about an organization that was helping them once they decided, if they decided to return to Guatemala, helping them resettle. And I thought, oh, that's an interesting angle. I haven't seen what actually happens when they're back in Guatemala. I got a fellowship it was International Reporting Project, to travel to Guatemala and find some of these young people and show what their life was like once they returned. What was their life like, and how did that life compare to the Cambodians who you later reported on? There is some similarities in a way in that they also, most of them, were indigenous Guatemalans, and they had a lot of discrimination in history as being indigenous Guatemalans. With Cambodians, there was the civil war and genocide, 
I hate comparing things too much. So there, there are some of those traumas on the community that back there, it was hard for them because they'd kind of had this taste, even though they were in detention that whole time. One of the kids, he'd been taken to a baseball game from the center. They were teaching him English at the center. So they kind of had this taste of the U.S., and then they went back to extreme poverty in a lot of cases. A lot of them had extreme debts from the coyote who had taken them there that they owed. So their family was facing a lot of difficulties and a sense of failure, too, because they had been their family's hope that they were going to go there. And now they're back. It was very hard on these young, they're still children, to deal with that kind of thing. With the Cambodians, some of the ones who have been deported over there, it's very hard because most of those ones came to the U.S. as very young children and identify as American. They'll speak some Khmer, which is what's spoken primarily in Cambodia, but most of them cannot write it. One deportee told me it, he thinks it's like spaghetti because it's not our alphabet. And culturally, they identify very much as American. A lot have tattoos, which is getting more accepted in Cambodia, but rural Cambodia not as accepted. And a lot of the Cambodians see them as American. Like dreamers. They're kind of trapped between the two worlds. They came here very young, a lot of them. And yeah, this is their country as far as they know. Uh, I didn't ask. I was in Cambodia for a couple of days. I went to Siem Reap and did the tourist thing. But I also went off a little bit on my own and I talked to people. A number of them spoke good English, and I never asked if they'd been deported, but from your book, from Exiles, it sounds like they probably had. It's possible, actually, that's one of the good jobs for them, is tourism. One of the guys I followed up with over there, he had a little tuk-tuk business first, and then he, I think he got upgraded to a van, and he has an advantage is that a lot of the local tour guides just swarm the Westerners when they come in and kind of overwhelm them, and then they hear this guy, a little more laid back, great English, if they're American tourists, sounds like them, they go towards him. Quite a few found, and Siem Reap was a good place to work in the tourism industry. So there's a chance that person was. In talking to these people in Cambodia and asking them about the government, and of course, all of them have stories of their parents and grandparents. I saw nobody even remotely close to my age. They all talked about, if only we could get a better government. Yeah. The current leader is actually... Khmer Rouge. I mean, his group got then attacked by other Khmer Rouge. He fled to Vietnam, came back in, but he's Khmer Rouge. And he's been in power, what, three decades or so, and a lot of corruption. The whole country, huge trauma, and huge number of people just murdered. And so, like you said, there aren't older people because I think it was estimates of how many were murdered or starved to death was 20 to 25 percent of the population. We're talking just 75 to 79. So not that long ago. In Cambodia, I didn't hear too much talk about the government, too, because there was fear to talk about it a bit. Some of the people I know would hint at issues with the government, but would be careful about going around that a little, not talking as openly I found, actually, from a couple of people, they were more able to, but that may have also been Siem Reap. It could be, yeah, and it could be timing, too. Like, there's certain times that the government cracks down more, and other times, like, right before elections and things. Some of the people I know worked for the government, so they had to be careful. Yeah, so. Katja Sengel, Guatemala, you wrote about the migrant children who went back. What brought you to the uh, Cambodian issue? 
It's actually neat because it started in Berkeley at Berkeley High. I went to school at Berkeley in the 90s, and I had a friend, Davri, who was a Cambodian refugee. She had a California accent. She spoke like I did, complained about French like I did and stuff, but it was in French class once. The teacher asked for baby pictures, and Davri said, I thought it was a really easy assignment. I was <laughs> pretty happy, and Davri was like, I can't do it. I'm like, what do you mean you can't do it? She's like, I don't have any baby pictures, and I, I didn't believe her. I'm like, everyone has a baby picture because that time in my life, my world was smaller. I didn't realize that that wasn't something everyone would have, and so she told me she had fleed from Cambodia when she was very young, and it kind of tucked in the back of my head. Years later, she started telling me about Cambodian friends of hers who were being detained. They weren't being deported yet, but they were being detained. Again, I didn't really understand. I said, well, wait, you came here as refugees. You're citizens, right? And she said, no. And that's when I realized the more complex issues of how in the U.S., if you come as a refugee, you become a legal permanent resident, but you're not an automatic citizen. It's a separate process. And so that's how these young people who came as kids and just figured they were American because they grew up here hadn't realized all these things. And so for me, it just didn't make sense. So I had to figure out more about it. Did you contact her at that point? I'd lost track of her because high school was a while ago. And another friend, I'm not friends with too many people from high school anymore, but I found another friend and she connected me back with her. And I told her, you're in the book. I need to send you a copy. And she was excited, but I haven't reconnected fully with her yet. I mentioned her in the book and give her credit. I've forgotten her last name, but um, <laughs> she does get credit. So how did you get started then? Obviously, there are these three or four families that you focus on, uh, in particular, David Ross and his family, San and her family, Touch and his family, and then to a lesser degree, Song and his family. They're all in L.A. Yeah, Long Beach, most of them. And what happened is, after I wrote that article in 2015, there was a young woman in Cambodia who was the kind of the inspiration to continue it into the book. Davri was the inspiration for the article, but continue it in a book. After talking with her, realizing I needed more time to tell the story, to get the generational impact. And she was a very brave young woman, but she didn't want to subject her family in the U.S. to that kind of attention. So after that, I started reaching out to organizations, activists who work with the community. It took a long time, actually, <laughs> especially the older generation, a lot it's painful to revisit. And a lot of people, maybe not distrust, but that weren't sure my motivations for good reason. I mean, you know, I'm asking them to open their lives to me. David, I think I found because he was an activist at the time, he was really active in this. So he was very open about telling his story. So I connected with him. And then one of the other families, San and her family, a woman, again, who helped out the community, knew that San actually wanted to tell her story. San's an older generation, and her adult daughter was facing deportation. And when that issue came up, she kind of was re-traumatized again, so it was all coming back anyway. So she thought, I might as well tell this story now. I'm older. She was in her 70s at the time. She wanted to get it out then, and because she was having to go through the nightmares anyhow, she figured do it. One family, I think they're just one chapter there, and her husband had just been deported. We met once, and I kept trying to follow up with her, and she never got back to me. And I think it was just too painful for her. And the family of Touch and... Uh, Puti, his yeah. brother? Yeah, yeah. They actually also, there was a lot of attention on them because 
Puti, the older brother, had kidney failure, and Touch wanted to donate his kidney. He was only in the one in the family who didn't have high blood pressure and so could actually donate his kidney, but he was subject to be deportation. So his lawyer and a lot of the activist organizations were trying to get a stay of removal so ICE wouldn't take him right away so he could donate the kidney. So they were in the news, and so I got to them through their touch. He was a little leery of me. It took a while, and even then he was one that... I got to know his sister and his cousin and his parents, but he let me in only so far, and he was able to give his brother his kidney. And I guess the other one, Song, the older man, he was part of the community, so you would have met him through them. Yeah, actually, he he used to be in the government, and he was pretty prestigious and knows the current government as well. And I connected, and he actually was on the flight to get Lan Nol, the former leader, out before the Khmer Rouge came. He had been in Lan Nol's government and got out. An American in Cambodia who helps a lot of the deportees connected me with Song. Well, it's a big community. It's also small. Once you kind of make some inroads, you get other connections. Eventually, you develop these four stories and they intertwine, which must have been a difficult task. Yeah. When I started on it, I knew I wanted to tell this, what is it like for these families now facing this? But I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know if some of my people would get deported while I was reporting on them. I didn't know what would happen. I mean, I I go to the ICE check-in with David. I go to court when she's having a hearing. I never knew what would happen, and I just kind of did it in real time. And eventually put it together. Now, most of the action happens from 2015 through 2016 into January 2017 when you took a trip to Cambodia. Another thing that happened on January 20th, 2017, we know what that was. Things were tight beforehand. I did not realize, for example, how difficult it was for these refugees under Obama. And it got worse, I would assume. Yeah. So I think a lot of people don't realize the laws that made this possible date back to the 1990s. And yeah, quite a few were deported under Obama, but there's some numbers, but they've definitely increased under Trump's presidency. There have been more raids, ICE raids, because a lot of these people, all of them committed crimes, but did time. They'd finished out their sentences. And some right away were taken to immigration detention, but some, they can only hold them a certain amount of time there. And if they aren't shipped off to Cambodia. They have to let them go. So some have been out 5, 10, 15 years. They have families. They have regular jobs. They have lives. And what under Trump, ICE has been just raiding homes and taking people right when they get off work, those kind of things. And so it has increased a lot. Uh, David and Sithi still in this country? Yeah. David still has to check in, though. But it's interesting right now, under Trump, there's also the activism. There's more awareness now. When I started writing the book, I remember some people saying, what are you writing about? Who's going to read that? Then once Trump came in, people started paying more attention. So it's a double-edged sword in that there is a little more knowledge of this now. Governor Brown has been asked to pardon some, and he has in some other state, can do pardons. So there's one who has been able to return from Cambodia, very rare, and it was a special kind of legal case. There are also some signs of hope. Katja Sengel, even going to Cambodia and seeing the skulls and Siem Reap didn't give me an idea of how horrifying life was under the Khmer Rouge. Starvation, the deaths, the bodies by the side of the road. Vietnamese come in, the Khmer Rouge are sent away, and a new government emerges. 
in that period of war, that second war, a lot of people escaped and they went over to Thailand and many of them came to the U.S. They were absolutely traumatized at that point. And what the U.S. did is said, fine, you're here, where are you going to go? And they didn't care and there was no support and people wound up in ghettos and kids grew up in gangs. Is that pretty much it? Yeah. Timing too, it was the 1980s and so it was the crack cocaine epidemic, very violent inner cities. And at the time, a lot of these people, there weren't ESL classes as much as there are now and stuff. So a lot were just thrown into high school. The community wasn't encouraged to talk about trauma, and they were highly traumatized. And a lot of times they'd have a sponsor, someone to sponsor them when they came to the U.S. But a lot of times it would be a family member who came maybe a year before and also didn't speak the language, very isolated. It was just almost set up for disaster. And of course, people succeed, but there were a lot that got lost in that system. People like Sithi, people like David, and several others that you mentioned wound up at a very young age, getting into a lot of trouble, getting arrested, having guns. David murdered someone, which would imply that when Trump says we want to get rid of those people, of course, they were young and this was their survival mechanism. And suddenly, 40 years later, they're screwed. Yeah. And I think with Satie, too, it was hard. She was actually a teenager under the Khmer Rouge. She, her family credits her with helping them survive. She was able to kind of figure out how to steal food and survive. So she developed these coping mechanisms. Then she comes to the U.S., doesn't speak any English. They put her in high school. She gets beat up by other girls because she looks different and doesn't speak English. She takes a test home from school. And her mom said she knew how to do one thing, write her name. That was it. She also suffered from seizures because of the abuse under the Khmer Rouge. She ends up, of course, not finishing school. She tries to, I think the first time even as a teenager, she tries to jump off a bridge, kill herself, ends up with abusive boyfriends. One of the reasons is, is she said that's all she knew. She was used to the Khmer Rouge beating her, so that kind of made sense. And once I asked her mom why her mom, because one night her mom saw Satie's boyfriend beating her up. And I asked, why didn't you call the police? And she said, well, why would I do that under the Khmer Rouge? You wouldn't call the police because they're the ones who are beating you up. So I think there were so many things that without having gone through that, we American society didn't know even how to address, didn't understand what some of these people had gone through, the extreme trauma. The, the ones that didn't end up in trouble with the law. Usually, it was funny because David's brother ended up a pastor. And I said, well, how did that end up? One's in gangs, one's a pastor. And he said, you know, the, the big difference was my mom saw what happened to my older brother and she got me in this church that really intervened. And he just had a lot of people pulling him away and making that difference. So sometimes it's just individuals that were able to kind of help them and, and show them a different environment. Then we get into the area of the courts and the system here in the U.S. because they get away, they come to the United States, hopefully to have a better life, and then they spend the next few years just in poverty, not sure if it was safe to go back or not, I would assume. And suddenly, in the 90s, under Clinton, there were laws that were passed that made it more difficult. Yeah, it was actually, I think, one of the laws came after the Oklahoma City bombing. And so they were kind of anti-terrorism laws. And they basically took away discretion for immigration judges in a lot of ways and also made crimes that 
under regular law aren't felonies, under immigration law are felonies, which is super confusing, but means that people who are legal permanent residents but not citizens can be deported for a felony that can be writing a bad check, something that under our other laws we wouldn't consider a felony. And then also there was welfare reform. Yeah, so there was a lot going on there. And what happened at that time, Cambodians were just detained. And at first they were detained indefinitely, but then there was a lawsuit and it was held, I think they could only be detained seven, certain amount of time, and then they had to be released if they hadn't gone to Cambodia. And that held true for others who were being detained. And then in 2002, I believe it was, the U.S. put pressure on Cambodia to accept the deportees. And once that happened, then they started sending them over. Every year, there were some of them being sent back. It began with the U.S. bombing. I mean, this is an American issue like Iraq. Yeah. And I think that was another thing I really felt was important to tell is that because sometimes people think, OK, deport them back to their country. <laughs> and I said, well, we've influenced that country already. First we bombed, then we welcomed them in, in as refugees and put them in these inner cities and things. So I think it's so important to see the interconnected. The same with Guatemala, how the things we interfered with in that country affected now. So I think when people see deportation as just us and them, they lose that we're all actually kind of intermingled. And especially with the deportation, most of the people being deported, Cambodia, have U.S. citizen children. So again, even if we're sending them to Cambodia, we're still affecting U.S. citizens through this because the communities are intermingled. Katya Sengel, what is the Memorandum of Understanding? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so that was what happened in 2002. It was between Cambodia and the U.S. saying, Cambodia saying, we'll accept deportees. Cambodia has a lot of pressure for that. I think it was what, 2016 that Cambodia's tried to push back and say, okay, we're not going to maybe accept as many or we want some help with them and such. And then U.S. says, okay, we're not going to give visas to Cambodians. And then Cambodia gives in and says, yeah, we'll accept deportees. So Cambodia is a small country, U.S. big country. So there are these pressures. There's a similar one with Vietnam. But Vietnam's agreement was basically if you came before a certain year, I think 1990 or something, they wouldn't accept deportees. So that excluded those large number of refugees came during that time. Now the U.S. actually has under Trump officially deported Vietnamese Contrary to the Memorandum of Understanding, and I was trying to ask a lawyer how they could do that, and they said, well, it's a Memorandum of Understanding, but it's not law, so they could do that. What happens if Cambodia or Vietnam says, we're not taking them? Then what happens to those people? They can say that, but because the U.S. will put pressure and say, okay, we won't issue any Vietnamese or Cambodian visas, they buckle. If it did happen, then they, they would stay here. The U.S. would detain them as long as they could, then they'd release them, then they'd probably keep detaining them until Cambodia, Vietnam buckled. And mostly they will give in because they want people to be able to get those visas to come to the U.S. You don't really talk specifically about it, but what role does racism play in the lives of the Cambodian refugees who come to America? I think that that played a, a large role in that 
a lot of the places they went, Long Beach, there were already Latino gangs, maybe. And so they were the Asians. And so they tended to kind of protect themselves because they were picked on as the newer outsiders and such. And so a lot of the gangs they formed, sometimes it was with Vietnamese as well. Some gangs were just Cambodian. And a lot of them will tell you they formed the gangs for protection because they felt picked on as the ones who couldn't speak English and for being Asian. And so they form their own. These horribly traumatized people from the ages of two on up came to America. Did America do anything to help them with their trauma? I think at the time, I mean, there may have been some efforts. I I hear different things from different people as far as real organized. Because resettlement is kind of through the sponsors and things, it just varies for individuals. And I think there were some organizations that were doing some stuff about how much this population was aware of that. It kind of depended where they ended up. Some with David's family, they moved around a lot. Most of the people I followed had nothing like that given to them or were approached by that. Touch had a mentor. And it sounded like just a man who kind of did a big brother type thing. And they say that actually made a difference in his life. But then that individual died. And they said that was when they saw him going downhill. And also at the same time, there was a school shooting at Stockton. Touch was there. Gentleman killed all Cambodian and Vietnamese children. So re-traumatization. Touch went one direction. His brother Puthi did not. Puthi came here. He was older. And I think his dad wanted him to finish high school. I think he eventually did. But he got teased a lot because I think he was 20 or something in high school. And he had never learned to write in Khmer. He was illiterate in his own language because he had come of age at a time of all war. And the Khmer Rouge didn't educate you or anything. So he struggled so much in school. But yeah, he was able to stay out of trouble Aside from his health, he was doing okay. Gender orientation is not mentioned at all in the book. The people I talked with didn't bring it up as much. I'm sure it was an issue. The only gender things we talked on more was the different cultural things once they go back to Cambodia for women versus men. The women deportees, it it was even harder than the men, I found, because it's a more traditional, especially out in the rural areas, idea of gender and what it means to be a woman. So one of the women, like she said, she would smoke and she's, no, no, you can't do that. And they're more protective. Even the men talk about, you know, you don't have sex before marriage in traditional and things like that. And if you're dating a woman long enough, you need to marry her. So there's definitely issues around gender. But as far as other gender identity, the community I was talking with, I didn't bring it up and they didn't bring it up, I guess is the best way to say it. Not saying it wasn't there. Katya Sengel, let's catch up on these people. The book ends almost two years ago. I'm going to bring up some names. Yeah. Where are they now? San, the older woman, what is her story now? Her husband died. Yeah, and she's moved back Long Beach. She actually owns a duplex, and she lives right by one of her granddaughters. She helped raise granddaughter's adult now and has her own children. She went on a vacation not long ago, so she's doing better. She's still missing her husband very much. She actually did a, a book signing with me in LA not long ago. So she's still healthy, doing well. I still haven't heard she wanted to go see her sister back in Vietnam. I don't know if she's going to try that trip or not. And her daughter, Scythia, who came out well, but then got embroiled in scandal through her husband. She and her husband are in the US now. I 
kind of avoid that topic a little on whether they're going to go back or not, or if they have to stay here or not. But they're okay here, but they are here now, whereas before they had been in Cambodia. But as you said, there was some scandal with business and money and such. And so I kind of leave that one a little bit, but they're, they're, they're here. And Sithi, who had a lot of problems when she was younger, and I saw her picture. She was a very attractive woman. Beautiful. That whole family, the three daughters, the mom, gorgeous. And she has not been deported. Is she doing better now? Yeah, she's great. She's actually driving for Uber. (laughs) (laughs) And she said she tells her clients about the book. She reconnected one of her children. They're all adults now, but she hadn't seen in years. She actually reconnected with them. I saw they were both at that book signing, so it was great to see that. And her mom and her children say she's so different from when she was in trouble. And she actually was one of the few to win a court case where she right now, she's okay. She had a private lawyer. It costs money. But she did win a court case that she cannot be deported back. She still is... a legal permanent resident, not a citizen. So if she breaks any law, she could still be subject to deportation. And her sister, Jennifer. Jennifer, healthy right now. She had been battling breast cancer, but I I saw her also. Actually, it was so great. There were four generations of that family at that book signing. And Jennifer was one of those there. And she's, she's healthy right now. And the activist, David Ross? David is good. His son Solomon's now seven, and he is trying to figure out what will happen. He's pretty much accepted he will be deported, and what will happen with Solomon when he is deported. So he's been accepting that he's been deported for four years. He has, yeah. And he's always gone back and forth. He said if it wasn't for Solomon, he'd just go now and get it over with. But Solomon... And that little boy is so attached to him. Um, just got, I think, really good grades. And so David took him to Legoland. Even David's partner, who they had their own disagreements, admitted, David is great dad. And that's, I think, what some people think. He, when he was 16, yes, he killed a man. He did almost 20 years for that. And since he's been out and he had Solomon, he is a great dad. And his mom says she sees some of the troublemaker in Solomon that she saw in David. And I worry, if that kid loses his dad, what happens to him? That's a hard one. Now, Touch gave up a kidney, and in exchange for that, Puthy got a kidney, the brothers, and they're both doing fine here? I keep trying to get in touch with them, and they haven't been responding. And I touch base with their cousin, who helped me translate with their parents and stuff. She updated me on all the family. She didn't update me on them, and I kept asking. So I'm a little worried there. I sent them books. I'm hoping for the best on that, but I don't actually know because there was this evasion there, and there's only so much I can push. And the elderly song? He's had health issues again, but he is still there. He just got some recognition, and he's still really excited about certain issues. Did you use fake names? No. And they were okay with that, even though ICE is out there? Yeah. Almost all the people I followed, they check in. If they weren't checking in, it would be different, but ICE is already aware of them. Um, What happens is they check in, and any time they check in, ICE can take them. But like with David, he checks in every six months, and so far ICE hasn't taken him. This book could come up in a hearing itself. I don't know that ICE is aware of the book or would read it, but I I guess it could, but I don't know. At this point, I don't think it would influence it one way or the other because if they haven't, Sati had the lawyer and she won on that. David doesn't think he'll get out. 
Uh, it, it could, I guess, yeah, but I don't know that it would. I think the decision's already been made in some ways. The question to ask, which you probably don't have an answer for, is how do we make things better? I think awareness is a big thing. I think when people understand more the generational issue, because so many times people talk deportation individuals. And so for me, when they hear these family stories and think about the next generation that grows up without the parent, the older generation, those, I think so for me, awareness is a big thing. Another thing I think is what can we do? It's going to be really hard to change those 1990 laws, but there are pardons. And so now people are looking at that. Or we can look at making certain little changes. So maybe not those big changes. And then individual things. I think reaching out like several of those people, Touch was one, David's brother was another. Individuals who kind of, when families, refugees are new, helping out those families just individuals can make a difference. I have. Um, I was back in Kentucky this summer where I used to live, and there was a friend there whose husband, a Somali family, had been resettled there. And he goes, he and another woman go once a week and just check up on them. He changes a lot of bike tires for the kids, but kind of are that person who can help them when they get a letter from the government they don't understand, explain things. And I think so. Maybe we can't do big change right now, but little things, even as individuals, I think help. If somebody was listening to this now and they want to know one place to go to, where would you send them? The Asian Law Caucus, they're doing a lot of activism on this. In CRAC, Southeast Asian, if you put CRAC, it comes up. Um, both of those are very big on this, put a lot of information about what to do if you are facing this, but also are fighting for these people and asking for people to pardon them and keeping track of who's being deported. So I would say both of those would be great places to go. Katja Sengel, let's go back talk a little bit about yourself. Now, you were born in Berkeley, you went to UCSD, and you always wanted to be a journalist. Yeah, I always wanted to be a writer, and then at UCSD, I took time off to intern at newspapers, and that's when I realized I like journalism. And how did you wind up over in the Ukraine and the Baltics? There was an ad when I was interning at the San Diego Union Tribune while I was in college. There was an ad that talked about adventure and living in the former Soviet Union. And and I was intrigued and sounded like an adventure. So I applied, I got it, and then I figured, okay, I guess I've got to go. And did you do any writing from there then? Yeah, so uh, the job was with an English language newspaper. So I worked, it was the Baltic Times, I worked there, and then I freelanced at the time, the San Francisco Examiner was a daily, and I think it's now, I don't know what. <laughs> it's a non. <laughs> it's a sad to trace that. So I freelanced for them. BBC Radio, I did something there, and then I carried that on later. How do those connections happen? How do you become a, a, a freelancer at all these different places? I think at the time, there weren't a lot of people in Latvia. Of course, not a lot of newspapers wanted a story from Latvia, so it was limited, but it was being a reporter, English language speaking, in a place there weren't a lot of people and there was still some interest. So I just kind of reached out and did that, and then each connection would lead to others. So later when I was in Ukraine, it's a bigger country, more interest, and most newspapers, they'd have someone in Moscow, but that was it for that region. And Kiev, the capital of Ukraine, is pretty far from Moscow. So you could get some stories in there. And I think when I'd come back in between, that's when I started the San Francisco Chronicle. I'd freelance for them. At the time, they had this 
world pages. Uh, anyhow, everything's gone now. But uh, when I'd come back to the U.S., I'd meet them for coffee and say, hey, I'm over there and slowly work that and show them I'm reliable. I can do good copy and I'll go from there. Do you still follow what's going on in the Ukraine? A little bit. I haven't been back, uh, but my next book is actually about Ukraine in that time. It's sad. Uh, when I was there, Crimea was part of the Ukraine. Eastern Ukraine wasn't fighting. It's changed a lot. It's getting close to war there now. Yeah, yeah. And it, it doesn't seem to be any resolution in sight. It's just kind of open, ongoing conflict. But you'll probably have to go back there at some point. I want to, actually. Uh, I'm a little scared, though, because I have these memories of what it was like. And when I was there, you had to get a visa to go there as an American. So there there weren't that many Americans. There were some, but there wasn't that much traffic in Kiev. So I kind of remember this neat time when it was still not undiscovered, but it it was less on the beaten track. And I kind of like that memory. Well, most of your articles are about issues involving humanity's movement around the globe, various different stories. But then somewhere in there, there's a year with a minor league team. Were you always a baseball fan? No, actually. And that was, that came about because it was my first book. Well, the the assignment, I was at a newspaper in Kentucky and my editor assigned me to do, I was in features, not sports. And he wanted me to follow around the minor league team. We had a triple A team there. And I kind of rolled my eyes at him, I think. But then I went there and like the other stories I did, it had its own culture. And I was fascinated by this minor league culture. And that's what got me in because I think most of my stories are culture and communities. And when once I found that with minor league baseball, I was hooked. At that time, now, of course, there are a lot of women covering baseball. Were there that many at that point? This was about 10 years ago, right? Uh, yeah, there weren't. I remember being a woman was an issue, like they let you in the locker room, but the players would be like, well, you're not going to come in, are you? So you're made to feel uncomfortable on certain things. Like they'd let me sit in the dugout, but they'd talk differently because they'd be like, oh, a woman's here. You know, so there were still differences and there were still, you're in the locker room and someone drops their towel and they kind of look at you to see how you're going to react. And Because I was the only woman in the locker room at that time. So I do remember there being issues. I think even today, there are more, but I think there are always still some tensions there. Well, the minor league players are also pretty young. So this was single A? So I followed triple A team, two single A's, and an unaffiliated as well, which means they're not with an organization. So it's like there's the minors and then below the minors. <laughs> well, somewhere along there, you're watching games and you see the players that are going to move up and the ones that aren't. Can you mention a couple of names of the people who did? Yeah, Jose Altuve. He was single A, when I, and he was one of the ones for each team. I'd try and follow two players. Followed him and another player, and the other player was the bonus baby who had huge signing bonus, was supposed to be, they'd invested so much in this kid, supposed to be the star, and already Jose Altuve, who, what, 12,000 out of Venezuela or something, you know, he was starting to rise and was being protected, and before he didn't even finish the season before he was moved up. Uh, what was he like? At that point, <laughs> he was cute. <laughs> I say cute because he was so young and he was nervous about his English. And I remember we went to his apartment and he had a roommate. So they'd call it 
the Latin house and all the Latin players would live in it. And there were a bunch of them for a two-bedroom place, and they talked about lining up for the shower in the morning. But Jose and his roommate, they, they, they shared a room, and they were talking about how good it was. They had actual mattresses. There was no bed frame, but they had mattresses. Everyone else in the house had um, air mattresses. And, and Jose said he got his after his air mattress popped one night, and so he decided to upgrade to the mattress. So it was very different from how he lives now, I'm sure. Have you talked to him since? No, you know, I tried to find him on Twitter and stuff, but he's kind of moved beyond my level. (laughs) (laughs) But he would remember you, I would assume. I think so, because I I followed him around. I remember he'd have the other guy come, because he spoke English okay, but he was just nervous about speaking English, so he'd bring the other guy there, and he was was shy. I remember he had a blanket, and it came from home, and I said, oh, from a girl at home? And he said, yeah. And, you know, so he he had some balloons. I think it was his 20th or 21st birthday on still on the wall kind of deflated real and I remember he liked watching was it vampire movies or something on his laptop he was just a sweet guy and then he became a superstar exactly and I can't think of you know it's one of those where you, a n- nice person who makes it bit you you know you're taller than him right <laughs> oh yeah that's another reason I call him like sweet and little because he's I think he's the smallest guy in minor league baseball he's, he's pretty small he's yeah. small and even what they list his height as I think is even a little higher than what he actually is when you see them talking about what a nice guy he is and all that you're going well yeah 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 definitely what was it like for the players who you knew were never going to get there you know I'm one of those people and I guess because I'm not a baseball expert and because you never never know I guess I I never there are people I thought, yeah, probably aren't going to, but I was never sure. But there, there, there was an older guy and um, unaffiliated, and you kind of knew. And and it's hard because there's still always that hope. As long as you're there, even if it's the minors, even if it's unaffiliated, it's professional baseball. There's always that chance that something happens, your position or someone notices. You know, there's all there's always that hope. So I think it's so hard for them to give up. Because there's, they're, they're close, especially if they make it to AAA and they're just one, I always say one phone call away. It's so hard, but there's so many that are like career AAA and they're always there and they only get called up at the end of the season. And there was one guy, he was 35 and trying to think, well, but that's all they've done with their life. What now? And they don't know anything else. It's, it's actually hard, but some people say the story's sad, but I don't think so because they got to do what they loved, you know, and and they they liked it. Katja Sengel, you said you're working, you're going to start work on a book about your adventures in the Ukraine. Have you begun? It's finished. It's with the publisher now. I think it doesn't come out till spring 2020. What is it called? We kept changing the name. It is From Chernobyl with Love, Reporting from the Ruins of the Soviet Union, I believe. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>